0: How many people out here have ever used a post driver like that? Yeah, yeah. One we used to have at home had a spring-loaded head in it so that when they hit it, would bounce up and make it a whole lot easier. Man, I loved that. I didn't love it, but it was a lot easier than than that thing there. Uh, those, were, those were hard days. My dad would tell me and say to me or, or say to other people, he's got a dollar in his pocket and it's burning a hole trying to get out. Any of you? ever hear your dad say that to your mom that dad said that a lot about us we didn't we didn't have an allowance on the farm because we worked on the farm that's just what you did there was no payment for us doing that we lived there that's what we did if if, uh, if we needed something mom would buy it at the store she would uh, get us the clothes we need most of the time that was hand-me-downs for my three older brothers so there wasn't always a real big need there but if we wanted to have spending money then we had to do something else we had to put up hay for someone or mow somebody else's yard and then we got the money we went we wanted or needed to go do whatever he wanted to do and man it was just a case when I had that dollar or two or three that I got from mowing a yard or putting up hay and I put it in my pocket it was burning a hole waiting to get out man I I wanted to spend it I really wanted to spend it badly so we would go to the state fair every year up in Indianapolis and there was farmers row tractor row and and, and dad and I and and the brothers we'd spend time just going up and down the road looking at new tractors I didn't care so much about the big tractors I wanted the little tractors that you could buy in the John Deere tent So I had $6, had my $6 I got from mowing the yard, and I went and bought my John Deere tractors. I bought this back in 1963 or 4, something like that. I know some of you weren't even around then, but uh, I bought these eight tractors. There's eight of them in here, individually boxed. There's an 1892 Frolic, a 1912 Waterloo boy. A lot of really neat tractors in there. And man, I was so glad to have the money to buy that. It may be worth a whole lot more money today, but at at that age, $6 was a lot of money. And I was so glad to be able to have that to spend it. Now, things didn't get a lot better for me as I got older. I never did get to the place where I was really good with money, ask my wife. She'll let you know. We got married, and uh, uh, she was working full-time in an area hospital. I was a full-time student at St. Louis Christian College. Uh, in the afternoons when classes were done, I'd get with my friend Dan and Doug, and uh, we'd go up to the bookstore, and I would take a check and write a $10 check and cash it so we could go do something in the afternoon. We would go to Venture. Anybody remember Venture Store? Yeah, a few of you do, kind of like Walmart, Kmart kind of a thing. And We'd go in there, and, and I loved Big Banana Pins. Do you, you remember, anybody remember a big banana pins? Yeah, those are big banana pins. They were great. I have terrible penmanship, but I love big bananas. And so I'd cash $10 check. Deb would come home and she would see that I had written out a check and she said, Where's the rest of the money? I said, I don't know. But look at these great big banana <laughs> pins. I got adventure. And she simply did not understand my love for big banana pins. I mean, they were great. I had lots of those and now they're all gone. Love for things minus our cash equals debt. Not always but but the principle still works that when we have money and we're buying things and we buy a lot of things and we have to borrow money to do that, we end up being in debt and there are really a lot of great examples around us to show us about what debt's all about the us debt right now is twenty eight trillion dollars I can't even begin to imagine that kind of money, but it amounts to eighty six thousand dollars per person. Right now, the, the, the debt is so high that we're to the point where our taxes can e- cannot even cover the interest on the indebtedness that we have in the U.S. today. There's a debate in Congress going on right now about raising the debt ceiling uh, in order to be able to borrow more money so that we can pay our bills. We've learned that lesson, I think, from the government way too well. We really have the median household income declined 2.9% from 2019 to 2020, and the the, uh, the average weekly earning last year dropped 1.4%. Understand there's COVID, people lost jobs, the economy tanked, and, and that's understandable. But even at that, the average American family only saves $5.70 out of every $100 that they make, and sometimes even less. Yet the average... Credit card balance that's carried by Americans today is $5,525. If you never made another purchase on that card and you paid only the minimum amount, it would take 30 years to pay that card off. And the interest tacked onto that would be $15,000. See how debt just rolls. It just increases. I read about a dad who's got his little four year old daughter in bed, and, and, and he likes to read stories to her at night, especially a Bible stories. So he's reading the story about the prodigal son. You know the story. He, the young man gets his father's inheritance or gets his inheritance from his father, goes to a far land. He squanders all of his money, decides the pigs are eating better than he is. He thinks, I'll go home, and he does, and he apologizes to dad, and dad loves him and brings him back to his house. And so this father who's reading the story to his daughter said, what do you think the lesson is here? And the little girl thinks about this for a while and she finally says, the lesson is never leave home without your credit card. That's not the lesson, but that's what she got out of it. A good question for us to ask is, is debt unscriptural? Is going into debt unbiblical? Some Christians would say yes. And they would quote Proverbs 22 where it says, Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. Or they might quote the New Testament where Paul wrote, um, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. But if we study scripture, we see that borrowing was at least practiced, if not even acceptable in the scripture. In Nehemiah chapter 5, the prophet himself says, I myself as well as my brothers and my workers have been lending the people money and grain. But now let's stop this business of charging interest. Stop usury. Is said, it's fine to let them borrow from us, but let's don't charge them interest in doing so. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, we could take that too far and talk about debt and loans and those kind of things, but Jesus simply says, if somebody wants to borrow something from you, let them have it, give it to them. It, perhaps the real issue here is that that Christians ought to be accountable, that we ought to be the people who are good at paying back loans. I mean, if if we're borrowing money, then we should should do that well. The Bible says, the wicked borrow and never repay, but the godly are generous givers. If anybody ought to be accountable to creditors, it needs to be Christians. We need to show the world that we are accountable with the things of the world, with what the world has given to us and, and the things that we use in the world. Well, debt may not be unscriptural, and it may not be ungodly, but it can still ensnare us. It can become a a major trap in our life. How does that happen? First of all, debt affects our finances. Long-term goals cannot be realized. It is estimated that 66% of Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck. Debt leads to late fees. It leads to bad credit reports, foreclosures, and even bankruptcy. One of the major causes of divorce in America today is indebtedness or money. It's also uh, uh, understood that almost one of 100 households will file for bankruptcy. So a debt affects, it, it affects our finances. It affects our families. Families that are in debt struggle. They have depression. There is uh, uh, arguments that take place. There's stress on the parents. So it affects finances. It, it affects families. It also affects our faith. Are you able to support various ministries in the church? I mean, are you, are you able to tithe weekly? It's hard to give back to ministry work when we are in debt, when we don't have any extra money, uh, and, and we find it hard to pay our bills as well as to give to the church. You've heard of the 80-20 rule that 20% do 80% of the work, 20% give 80% of the funds. In a very general sense, that's still very true, even in the church today, and I don't mean us, but churches in general. It is estimated that 16% of the membership give 84% of the, of, the, of the money. 44% give 16%, and 40% give nothing. Overwhelming debt affects every aspect of our life. It, it affects our, our faith, our families, our health, and our future. Okay, we need to be honest about this and to come to grips with this. What really causes debt? We can look at the economy, we can look at job loss and all these things, but what really causes indebtedness? Last week, Tyson talked about uh, the need to initiate an attitude of gratitude. And it's it's really easy to be grateful when God, who is generous, meets all of our needs. It's easy to do that, but, but gratitude can only find its full expression when that's coupled with contentment, when we learn what it is to be content. So let me ask you this morning, are you content? Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with what you have, with your station in life, with where you work, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the house you live in? Are you satisfied with the size of your TV screen or the size of your your cell phone screen? Are you content with your last vacation, your retirement portfolio? Are you content with your husband's hairline or your wife's hairdo? I mean, I still only have an iPhone 7. I don't know if I'm content or not. It's an iPhone 7. Come on. My motorcycle is a 2007 model. My pickup truck is is seven years old. I've had these shoes for a year now, and it's been days since i changed my Facebook profile. Some of you people out there do that every 15 minutes. I have no idea why, but it happens all the time. Now, I say to myself, you know, I think I'm content. I I believe that I am am satisfied. But Apple says, no, you need an iPhone 97. And and, uh, uh, the social media says, no, you need to make sure that when you put a post on Facebook, it's liked 5,000 times. Then you can be content. Popeye's Chicken says, you won't be content until you eat one of our sandwiches. I mean, (laughs) The world around us, social media, everybody says, you have no business being content because there's always more to have, more to get, more to become, more to go, things to do. Oftentimes, contentment's based on comparisons. How does whatever it is measure up to my brother-in-laws or my next-door neighbor or uh, somebody else in my family or a friend? You know the old saying, we oftentimes buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress friends or people we don't even like. And that's very true. I mean, we do that at times. Young people today, not all of them, but several young people today suffer from something called premature affluence. At 25, 26, 27 years of age, they want to be economically, financially, where mom and dad are right now at age 65. Well, mom and dad weren't that, off or that well off at age 25. It took 40 years to get there. Some people suffer from what... Um, our author on the book, uh, Too Much, called FOMO, The Fear of Missing Out. You'll read a Facebook post. You'll see somebody took a vacation. I, say, I need a vacation like that. Or you'll see that, that somebody has got a new SUV in their driveway. I need, I need an SUV like that in my driveway too. The fear of missing out drives us to anxiety. And we end up spending more money to meet that anxiety. There's always a danger to allow comparisons to dictate our contentment. My brother Tim, the next one older than I am, rides a, uh, a Kawasaki motorcycle. My first motorcycle was a Kawasaki 800 Standard, and at that time he had a Kawasaki 1600 Classic. Well, on 4th of July, he came down to visit us when we were still in the Anna, and we got on our bikes in the afternoon took a ride going down the road. We stopped someplace away from the house, and Tim said, You want to switch bikes? You want to ride this bike? I said, Yeah, that's, that's fine. So I got on his bike. My 800 standard, you get on it. His 1600, it's awesome. I'm telling you now. So I threw my leg over the top of that Kawasaki, took him down the road. Easy rider, man. I was having a great time. We got back to the house. I got off that thing, and and Tim said, "Look, it's dangerous if you get on this because when you ride it, you're going to want a bike like that." No, no, it's no problem at all. I get home. I need a new bike. I need, I need a new motorcycle. I won't tell you what I did. <laughs> you know, there, there are people that have and people that don't have. Haves and have-nots. And, and, and Gary Johnson wrote about that in the book too much, about people that had and have not. And, and one of the people he described was, was Solomon of the Old Testament. Here's a guy that's got literally everything. You think that he would have been content. He would have been satisfied. In Ecclesiastes 1 he said, Look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. In the second chapter of that book he said, I bought slaves, both men and women and others were born into my household. I own large herds and flocks more than any of the kings who, who lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women had many beautiful concubines i had everything look i had everything a man could desire first king says he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and in fact they did turn his heart away from the lord wow look at that list wisdom wine work wealth women and yet solomon admitted he said those who love money will never have enough How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Sounds like winning the lottery, doesn't it? You've heard of people that won the lottery. They had cousins they didn't know they had. He said, so what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Solomon wanted more and more. And the more he got, the less he was satisfied. The more he obtained, the less he was contented. There's another have-not in Scripture. We read about him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Scripture brings all these stories together, and he's titled The Rich Young Ruler. Today we may look at this guy like um, a, Wall Street, a Wall Street banker, maybe an accountant, maybe a, a well-paid lawyer. and He's got the, got the power suit on and the power tie on, got the Rolex watch and the fancy shoes. Probably a limousine or a really nice sports car brought him to his place of business. Here, this power broker of Jesus' day comes up to Jesus, falls down on his knees, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. You must not testify falsely. Don't cheat anyone. Honor your mom and dad. teacher I've obeyed all these things since I was young and look at this it says look at the man Jesus felt genuine love for him I I, I get the idea that Jesus is thinking this man is so close he is so close to eternity if we can just move his sense of priorities a little bit if we can just help him understand the value of the kingdom compared to the value of of things maybe he's going to be okay Jesus said, "There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions, give your money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven." Then, after you've done that, come and follow me." Look at the text. At this, the man's countenance. the look on his face, it fell. He went away sad. Why? He was wealthy. He had the Rolex, and he had the belt, and he had the tie and the suit, he had the car, he had the house, he had all those things. He had many possessions, and he was crushed because he felt the call to follow God. But the worth of the world was worth more to him than the worth of the kingdom. And I suspect if we could see Jesus' heart, it was broken as well. Because Jesus is looking at this man that he loved thinking he's so close to the kingdom. Ah, that was so far away. How do we measure up in a world of have-nots? I mean, has our pursuit of things blinded us to what really matters for eternity? Are we content? Does the word satisfied describe us, really? The scripture speaks of another person, and we would call that a have individual. You see, before he met Jesus Christ, Saul, later the apostle Paul, was a guy who had it all. Look at his pedigree. He said, man, I'm I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Man, when it comes to the law, I cross the T's and I dot the I's. When I've been told what to do and I have received this, this mandate from the officials to go to Damascus, I am on my way, ready to arrest believers and bring them back for trial. He had it all. But when he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and his life changed, and, his, and his, his direction changed, all those things, his status, his state, his pedigree, his possessions, he said they were all garbage. In the Greek language, it simply means dung. It was manure compared to knowing Jesus Christ, he said. The things of the world are worthless compared to knowing Christ. And he was so filled with joy that he wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. And the word joy, or a, a derivative of the word, is found 16 times in that letter. In chapter 4, Philippians, he writes, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me now. Uh, not that I was ever in need. Look, for I have learned how to be satisfied, to be content." With whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation. Whether it's with a full stomach or empty. With plenty or little. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help. When I first brought to you the good news. And then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. Now, as Paul is pinning this letter, he is in prison in Rome in chains. Yet he said, I am more free than any other man. Truly, he learned to be content living with less in a land of more. He figured that out. How do we get to the place that we can admit that maybe we have too much? And I'm not making any judgments on anyone here today. It's just a question that we need to ask ourselves as we look at our station in life. Can we admit that we have too much? To do so means that we learn to be satisfied, that we learn to be content. My wife has a book called The Cozy Minimalist. I can't believe I even said that word. Uh, the author of the book said, look, the things in your house, if, if you've not seen it, if you've not used it, if you found no purpose for it in six months, it needs to go out. I have to keep moving in the house. I'm afraid if I stay in one place too long, <laughs> I'm out of there. To admit that we've got too much means that we agree with Paul. When Paul said, I've learned. He said, I've become educated how to be content with whatever I have. I've learned the secret of living in every situation i've learned to be at peace about this whether it's with a full stomach or empty with plenty or little for i can do everything through christ who gives me strength now remember keep this in context because anytime we take a verse out of context it's a pretext or a proof text in other words we'll make it try to say what it doesn't really say People read this and say, well, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That means that I can pass this test. I can lose 10 pounds. I'll get that raise. I can do all these great things because it says I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength. But that's not what he's talking about. The context only applies to Paul's statement of learning contentment. That's all that that it means. Paul simply said, by leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit, by learning to live in the Spirit, by trusting in Jesus Christ, I've learned that whether I'm hungry or full, whether I am strapped for cash or flush, it doesn't make any difference. I am content with whatever I've got wherever I am. Can we say that? Is it possible that that we can say that today? Or is our future, our look, our gaze always on something bigger, better, greater and more? There's nothing wrong with goals. I'm not trying to to talk those things down. There's there's nothing wrong with having aspirations. But what's our motivation? What drives us? Is it so that we can build a stronger, better portfolio? Is it so that we can have another letter behind our name? Or do we look at opportunities as a way to serve God more and to bless others and to grow the kingdom? Let me finish up this morning by connecting the principle with practices that leads to real profit. So how do we get out of debt? How do we escape the debt trap? Number one, develop a game plan. If if you've got a piece of paper and you want to jot these things down, you can do that. That would be great. Develop a game plan. Number one, determine why you're in debt. I mean, did your income suddenly change? Has uh, has COVID affected you? Uh, Was there a job loss? What happened? has, has habitual overspending gotten you into trouble financially? Are you an impulse buyer? You know what an impulse buyer is? I have a pulse, therefore I buy. <laughs> that's, that's how a lot of people live. Determine the cause of your indebtedness and get a grip. Get a grip on it. Number two, find out where you are. How much money do you owe and to whom do you owe that money? You need to know exactly who you owe so you can develop a game plan out of that. Research the accuracy of your credit report. Is it it accurate? Don't open new credit card accounts. People do this because they want a quick fix. They feel better. Don't, Don't do that. Get rid of the credit cards if you can. Stop going deeper into debt. That's number three. Stop spending money you don't have. Before you can get well, you've got to stop the bleeding. I found some really interesting statistics about this. Did you know that if you gave up potato chips at lunch, you would save $176 a year and generate a retirement savings of $10,483 in 20 years at 10% interest? You would also lose 10,000 calories every year. and That's a good thing. Giving up two donuts a week. Giving up two donuts a week could boost your nest egg by $6,552 in 20 years. If you switched from drinking a double latte mocha large grande filled with whatever junk they put in this stuff and call it coffee and drank real coffee, black coffee, if you would do that, It's estimated that you could save $429 a year, a whopping $27,028 at 10% over 20 years. Test every expenditure. Don't leave any sacred cows out there. Ask yourself the question, do I really need this? And yes, there is a huge difference between what we need and what we want. Number four, make a spending plan. Guidepost Magazine told about a lady by the name of Mary Hunt she was $100,000 in debt. She developed a a very simple spending plan for getting out of debt called the 10-10-80 plan. 10% first of all goes to God. The first check that she wrote went to God. I don't know how many of you are in the habit of doing this, but let me encourage you to do this. Even if you think that it's financially hard, if not impossible, sit down and write out your first check of the week as you're offering to God. Watch God not make you rich, not bring in a million dollars, anything like that, but watch him help you meet your needs. Trust him. Test him in this. The second 10% that she gave went to savings. The last 80% went to debt reduction and to the amount of money she needed to live on. She got out of debt. Figure how to spend only what you must in order to use the rest to pay off debt and to get rid of those high interest credit cards. Number five, learn to budget. Have a plan for saving and for, for giving and for spending. One way you can do this is to spend less than your income you got to do that. It's, it's estimated that many Americans live on 110% of their income. The, the U.S. Uh, Department of Transportation did a, a research study here years ago on the cost of running red lights, you know, the cost which would be automobile accidents and medical bills. They discovered that $7 billion a year went into cost recovery of people running red lights, and they only saved 50 seconds by doing so. How many, how many financial red lights do we run when we spend money we do not have? And the second thing is this. Determine true needs. Establish your goals to adjust your spending so your money first goes to priorities. Again, not to, not to foolish spending. Both of these require a rethinking of how we spend our money. One of the things that just absolutely amazes me, and I'm so grateful for the, the, the project in town, the the. Uh, poverty initiative called Core Community, and a lot of you know about this, some of you even are working within that organization, is the change that happens to the people that are in Core Community because of their change of thinking, how they think about money, and how they think about debt and poverty. Uh, Patrick Miller, who is the overseer of the program, he wrote, though Core Community launched only 16 months ago, in the middle of covid We've already seen, listen, a collective debt reduction among our graduates of more than $21,000. A net income increase of more than $9,000 to get from poverty to middle class is an increase of 200% of income. That's incredible. Core leaders, those who have graduated, have purchased homes, started college, regained custody of children, found living wage jobs, and provide tremendous support and encouragement to each other as they meet these goals and many other goals. Their thinking has changed. Their way of thinking about money itself has changed. And folks, this is in a Christian environment. There's Christian principles that are put into place when the the folks in our classes meet together. This is not some uh, secular program. This is based on the Bible. Based on understanding who we are and whose we are and what we can do with what God has given to us. It's an incredible victory that we see. Develop a game plan. The second big thing is this, get some help. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If you're in debt, find someone else who has gone through crippling debt. Get counsel, advice from them, direction, because if they've gone through crippling debt and now they're out of that, then there's something they have done, something they've used that helped them do that. Talk to those individuals. Make use of resources that we have here at the church. There's Financial Peace University that's meeting right now, Core Community. There are plenty of books back in our library by David Ramsey and others that talk about how to get out of debt and and, and how to have a different appreciation for the gifts God has given to you. Whatever you do, develop a plan and get started. Every Christmas or Father's Day or birthday, Deanne will ask me what I want for my birthday, what I want for Father's Day. And I'll say, Well, Deanne, there's this, this new Ryobi tool that I would really like to have. And Deanne will say, Plenty of tools. I, Deanne, there's this there's shotgun out at Buckeyes I'd really like to have. And she said, Plenty of guns. You know, she never says plenty purses or plenty shoes. It's always plenty tools. Don't know why that is. And then I think of what David said in Psalm 23. You know the verse The Lord is my shepherd. I've got everything that I need. Wow. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my guide. He's my counsel. He's my rock. He's my source. He's my provider. He's my generous father. There is nothing else in the world that I need. Oh, yeah, I, I know. I do need to eat to, to stay alive. I need clothes to wear. I understand those real needs. But when it comes to everything else that we think that we have to have in order to survive, that we think we have to have to be accepted in this life, David said, no, the Lord is your shepherd. He's all you really need. And those words are echoed. They're backed up. They're given foundation by what Peter said in 2 Peter. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Everything that we need to do it right, to make the right decisions, to make the right choices, to do the right judgments are given to us by God. We've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called him to, called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and his excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and to escape the world's corruption. Look at this, caused by what we want, caused by human desires. Real contentment, true contentment, being satisfied with who we are, what we have, <laughs> everything else can only be found in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I've learned the secret of satisfaction. Whether I've got a lot or don't have anything, whether I'm, I'm hungry or I've got a big plate, I can be content. Because I know that my Lord Jesus Christ is greater than any of those things. This morning maybe you are, you are struggling a little bit with the priorities in your life. And you've been searching for something that will give you some type of meaning. Something that will fill the void that's there. I can guarantee you, you can pour it in and pour it in and pour it in from this world and that hole will never fill up. It will never fill up. But you put Christ in there and it will overflow. It will be a cup that will overflow. This morning, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, the one that allows you to know what satisfaction and contentment is all about, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. and We invite you to come as Jesus calls, as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, to come, accept him as Lord and Savior, maybe for the very first time to be baptized into Jesus Christ. If these are the needs in your life, let the generous God in heaven meet those needs. Would you stand, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. (laughs) <laughs> we don't come as beggars, but Father, we come as heirs, recipients, those being prepared to receive the glories of heaven. And for everyone in this room, dear Father, who's called upon your name as God, Lord, and Savior, we are in line for those. And yet, Father, it seems there are so many times that we end up settling for the crumbs that fall off the plate instead of the feast in the middle of the table. Father, help us to to change our way of thinking. To understand what really matters in this life. To serve you, to know you, to love you. to, To discover that secret of real contentment. And then, Father, to trust in you to provide all those other things that truly are the needs of our life. Father, let us be faithful servants. And if there is someone here today that needs to needs to express their belief and their faith and their love in you and for you. May they do that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.